This episode is sponsored by Airbnb. The focus of season three is all about how art and creativity can be used to bring about social change, combating racism, discrimination, and ultimately finding beauty through justice. Airbnb's mission is to help create a world where people can belong anywhere, and they wanted to support these conversations. And throughout the season, I'll be featuring some of their actions in this space. So stay tuned for that. Okay, let's start the show. Sadiso, a musician, songwriter, producer, and composer. I also teach. I'm fascinated by process, how we make what we make, why we make what we make. As a musician, I'm always learning from and inspired by other creatives, other musicians, artists, the arts itself, people. In short, life all inform the music I make. And I think that learning from others enriches not only our own art, but the arts. And why holding up the ladder? Well, because we're all trying to get somewhere and I think we build something stronger if we help each other. If we hold up the ladder rather than pull it up from under us as we climb. I'll be talking to all kinds of creatives about process, lessons learned, things that inspire us, the music we're listening to, what makes us who we are and the help we've had along the way. So join me as we climb, holding up the ladder. Uh, I don't know any visitor who comes to Lebanon who doesn't say that there's something magic about Lebanon and mm. all it's good and bad, there's something magic. And the magic is the people. When is enough is enough? When is adapting no longer the appropriate response? When do people stop adapting because of their resilience and say, you know, we've had enough and we need to do something to change this? I've changed this week's programming. We were due to talk about music with A&R manager Felix Howard because Wednesday the 4th of August marks the one-year anniversary of the devastating port explosion in Beirut that killed 200 people, made about 300,000 people homeless and created about $15 billion worth of damage. So today we're heading to Lebanon to talk about the situation in Beirut with founders of Art of Change, Iman Asaf and Jason Camp, an organisation that curates urban art to enrich communities, supporting and promoting local artists. As an art project, it's, it was the, the most challenging and yeah, emotionally draining project I've ever been involved in. Um, it was five months in the making because we had to do a lot of research to try and find all of the uh, the victims and, and the names and, and relevant photos and things like that. And then, you know, Brady sketched each and every one of the victims. Mm. Um, and then on May the 4th, which was the uh, nine-month anniversary, we, we took around 50 volunteers and we went to the street and we pasted each and every, every uh, portrait up uh, on, on one block so that it was like a whole huge portrait gallery. On the 4th of August 2020, a warehouse that stored fireworks caught fire and then exploded with a force of a magnitude 3.5 on the Richter scale earthquake. You may, like I, have seen some of the footage and honestly, it's horrifying. This explosion took place in the backdrop of political and economic problems, a fire in the famous forests that hold the cedars of Lebanon, the Lebanese government placing a tax on the phone app WhatsApp, unemployment at almost 60% and the Lebanese revolution on the 17th of October 2019. 2019 seems to be a year of people's revolutions or uprising. We saw it in Sudan, in Chile, in Colombia and Venezuela. I heard someone describe the explosion as an accumulation of decades of corruption that blew up in people's faces. I wanted to talk with Iman and Jason about art, about the public art they curate, the large-scale murals, the artistic services they create for artists, the revolution walls. And in a way, we do. You know, we talk about the moment of euphoria surrounding the revolution and the proliferation of art that was made during that time. But we couldn't escape how heavy it has been for the Lebanese people. Artists haven't been able to create because of it. Iman and Jason describe a kind of depression over the nation. 
first peak of the revolution was mainly about uh, the WhatsApp and few things. Now it's uh, the valuation of currency, uh, no jobs, uh, no milk for babies, no uh, no fuel, uh, mm. hardly any electricity, maybe three hours of electricity per day. Wow. Uh, starvation, uh, no more... Th- Three different classes is more like very wealthy or very poor. Some people are able to leave, but there are many who can't because the banks won't release their money or they simply don't have the means to do so. And then there are those who are determined to stay, to rebuild the Lebanon that they know should and can exist with new democratic, uncorrupt leadership. And uh, it's funny because no one wants to give the government. They're all giving the IOs. Right. uh, and the uh, and the government was trying to tax the NGOs on their donations because they were not receiving any donations themselves. Wow. So I think it was more about the unity of people fighting back uh, in the face of corruption. And so, as I started this introduction by asking, when is enough enough? Iman said something that really struck me. You know, she said that the Lebanese people are extremely resilient. They take what comes and adapt. But she believes the time for adapting has come to an end, that the Lebanese people should, I quote, stop adapting, continue resisting and fight to make the change. A few technical housekeeping things before we start. Given the situation in Beirut, the Wi-Fi wasn't great. So you may hear certain glitches, you know, words that aren't clear. And I've tried to clarify them as the episode goes along. So hopefully you'll be able to understand everything that's said. Iman also references her son's music. Professor Z. She calls him DJ Zero. She is right. He is also called DJ Zero. I promise it will make sense when you listen. You'll also hear me make reference to Sudan's former president, Omar al-Bashir. In the interview, I say he was in power for 40 years. It was actually 30. He came to power in 1989. Okay, I think that's it. Let's go. Jason Camp, Iman Asaf, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank Thank you for having us. Um, Actually, before we started, you're both part of Art of Change. And before I started recording, a man was telling me what it's like in uh, Lebanon and Beirut right now. And you you said it was like, I, I want you to repeat what you said about the thing about the pit, Iman. Uh, a friend of mine was telling me, it's like you're falling in a pit and there is no bottom to reach. You keep falling and falling. Uh Every day we fall a bit more, (laughs) so we don't know when it will be the the final suicide of a nation. Wow, it's yeah, it's a really, really heavy, heavy time. You know, you had the the blast in August, the fourth of August, um, that killed two hundred people and made three hundred thousand people homeless. Very, very intense. I want to start from the beginning because we're going to talk about it. I want to talk about it with you, but I want to start um, because this podcast is, this particular series is all about how art can be used to bring about social change. You both set up Art of Change, which curates public art to enrich communities and supports and promotes local artists. So would you tell me a little bit about how you set it up, why you set it up, and then we'll, we'll, you know, we'll revisit you know, the political and the social situation in Lebanon at the moment? Uh, So, yeah, you know, Iman and I met, I think, 2017 or 2018. Uh, We're just working on different projects in London and stuff. And I think it was just both of our backgrounds. We we are big fans of of art and urban art. Um, I've been involved in my own initiatives. Iman has spent a lot of time in, in Beirut and in Lebanon using art as just one of the, the vehicles to engage with the communities and things like that. And um, so when we met, we kind of got on really well together. We had the very same sort of work ethic. We had the same sort of principles. And uh, Iman invited me to come to Beirut to just, just work on a couple of uh, discrete projects. And from that, it kind of snowballed. So we set up Art of Change. It's, it's um, a proper business. It's a commercially viable business um, but we use that really and, and a lot of the funds that we raise to continue working with the communities and um, 
really kind of pushing Lebanese artists, but also engage, continuing that sort of engagement with the communities and enriching people's lives. Great. I run, uh, I run an NGO where it is all about doing community projects. And the most powerful projects that we did were the art projects, where it really changed uh, the streets, made positive changes on the streets. From here came to mind the Art of Change as an art institute. Because of all the projects that we did, it was the impact of the art on the street that was the strongest. And this is why I spoke to Jason, if we can start Art of Change together and work more on the art scene. Fantastic. And, you know, um, I've never been to Beirut. It's a place I've wanted to go to for many, many years. But I know that that part of the world has such a rich cultural, artistic heritage. And I know that also that part of the world, street art, maybe we didn't call it that then, but street art has been around for years. People have always, it's how people... Um, share their political views, is how people wanted, you know, got people to to vote or engage politically. So, um, and you've sort of taken it to the next level. And why do you think people are res- respond to art on the street in the way that they do? Why do you think they engage so much with it? Street art is a community project. It's not about an artist sitting in a studio and painting a canvas. It's about him engaging, him or her engaging with the community around them. So every wall we did, we had the nuns, the soldiers, the beggars, the people from the street coming and asking questions about why choosing these colors, what does the art mean, uh, can they participate in it. So it's very much a public engagement, and uh, I I think it's fair to say that we have brought the street art to a higher level in Lebanon by uh, changing the mindset of people. Uh, Street art is only graffiti. Now the street art is public galleries. You know, people look at it in a different way. So uh, I think we, with all modesty, I think we, we are responsible for that change in Beirut. Wouldn't you say so, Jason? Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. I think, yeah, as you said, it was always regarded as graffiti. Mm. Um, and even though you know, Beirut and Lebanon has got street art and did have some murals, there were very few. Mm. Um, and since we've come along, and it is, yeah, it's the whole thing, that the big artworks, the whole community engagement and, and participation, all of those things have gradually kind of turned people's minds. And now they look at these things and they see art rather than just graffiti. So, yeah, we've, we've developed a lot. It's, you know, when you go to London or New York or Paris, you see street art everywhere and it's kind of part of the city. Mm-hmm. I think in Beirut, it, it's, it's, it was a lot behind that kind of concept. And now we're, we're advancing and, uh, yeah, everybody's kind of embracing it now. The, the art scene was considered mainly for the elite somehow. So the visits of galleries, it was mainly the elite or a certain class of people. So we're bringing the galleries out to the street where everybody could appreciate art on equal basis and be encouraged to look more into visiting galleries as well as appreciating the, the street art. So it is really changing the mindsets of people. That's amazing. And, it, and it's very true. I mean, you know, in our experience as well, the well-educated and things like that are, you know, they're exposed to art and culture and, and they experience these things. But but the underprivileged and, and the deprived and everything, they typically don't even get taught art in their schools and things like that. So so their their understanding and their ability is in an artistic sense is, is very limited. And that, you know, even that when they... They come and work with us or play with us or, you know, join our events. It, it's a very strange thing to sort of try to explain, but see it, seeing, you know, sometimes, you know, adolescent teenagers producing some very kind of basic art, but it's their first time and, and they love it. They, you know, just they enjoy the whole process of being free to think and do what they like on a piece of paper. I remember the first mural we did, we crowdfunded for it. 
So uh, I had a lot of attacks uh, on social media that there are people who are hungry, there are people who need support and you're crowdfunding for the artwork. But once we finished the mural, all attitude changed. It was appreciation, it was gratefulness, it was uh, thank you for bringing cars uh, to the streets, thank you to the beautiful artwork. So it's really the first step that you take that really makes a difference. But the, the factor was that step was huge. Amazing, amazing. Uh, this is a bit of a side question, but Jason, you obviously have a London accent. Yes. So, um, I, and I know you explained how you ended up in Be- Beirut, but what a little bit, tell me a little bit about sort of what you were doing in London and how it feels like, you're in Beirut right now, aren't you? So how does it feel being in Beirut? He's an Englishman in Beirut. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, um, yeah, I've been in urban art scene for, I don't know, maybe 14 years now. And really, I just never started as a collector, so I was... I was working in banking and finance and, and collecting urban art. And uh, I took a six-month sabbatical and just sort of started travelling around Europe and working with some artists, which then led me to do a festival in South London, in Croydon, in 2018. And that's when Iman, she brought, you know, five Lebanese artists across. We all got on great. And, and, and I came over, we were working, I was working with Iman on a project for Tripoli about a very sort of, underprivileged area in Tripoli and how we could use art and a number of other vehicles to kind of um, repair some of the the emotional and community damage up there. And um, Beirut is a crazy place. The things that have happened here, yeah, it's heartbreaking, it's it's euphoric, it's it's everything. It's like a roller coaster and it never ends. Uh, he had his most exciting time in Beirut, tears running from the, <laughs> running from soldiers yeah. battles and <laughs> being gassed, so, being kind of arrested, <laughs> been been all sorts of things. So now when I go to London, I'm like so conscious of CCTV and you know so many police and so many restrictions. It's it's strange. I'd love to you guys to describe to me the Beirut before sep- the 17th of October 2019, because that's, I guess they call it the Lebanese Revolution. And it's very interesting because protests were also going on in Chile at the same time. Yeah, and um, Hong Kong. Yeah, and all ag- against sort of, you know, just corrupt governments and, you know, restriction of civil liberties. But... I, I sort of want to divide it in three. I want you to describe to me the Beirut before the 17th of October and how Beirut has been since this revolution and, of course, what's going on right now because of this terrible blast and in the middle of COVID. So let's go back. What was Beirut like before? I normally use Facebook as my personal diary. So mm-hmm. I, I write on my Facebook page what I feel. And I remember there was a big fire like uh, two months before uh, the revolution started and there were no uh, planes to um, the um, uh, the fire planes, whatever they're called, mm-hmm. to put the fire down and the army were not present and people were dying and suffocating. I remember writing it's a wake-up call for a real revolution. Uh, things were happening uh, continuously, and you, it's like an atomic bomb waiting for, to explode. Mm. And that fire was like the first signs of explosion happening. And the government were so uh, blinded by their ego and their selfishness and their corruption to realize that uh, things are getting heated on the street. Mm. So when they decided to uh, make the WhatsApp calls charge for dollars or something, uh, which is really hit the nerve and brought people out, but it was a buildup of things. It was Mm. a buildup of things. And uh, I think the fire was the start of it, which was Mm. two months before the revolution. Right. 
this is what how I saw it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, yeah for me, and and that was my very early days in in Lebanon as well. Um, there were lots lots of questions in my mind about why Beirut was the way it was, why situations were how they were, but there was never any real kind of real view of the real reasons why. So, you know, people were still kind of positive or optimistic about government and things like that. And there was a reluctance to kind of admit why things were so bad. And I think, you know, as Iman says, the forest fires, which wiped out a lot of the cedar forests, which are, you know, one of the the national treasures of, of the country, that really created a lot of resentment. And then, you know, the the, the WhatsApp tax was the, the the straw that broke the camel's back, if you like. And then when things exploded, there was like this this wave of truth or this wave of realization that finally came. And it was, you know, it was like saying, you know, all of the mess, you know, the fact that half the forest has been burnt down, the fact that you know taxes are so high, that unemployment is so so huge, were all failings of the government. And mm. and I think at that point, people really came together it was it was for me you know there were the religious divides and and people were were integrated and tolerant and everything else but they were still kind of in their own religious or political groups and then when the revolution broke everybody came together and it was no longer it didn't matter what religion you were or what sex you were or you know what your sexual orientation was or anything else People kind of realised then that it was, you know, about the Lebanese people and the government do not care for the Lebanese people. So that then, yeah, for me, it completely changed the whole Mm. attitude of of the country. Even now, I think uh, we had the first peak of the revolution in October 2019, which was very much a cultured revolution where everybody had... uh, things in a very cultured, sophisticated way, no violence, no nothing. Mm. I believe we are preparing for a second thing which will be really violent and uh, let's go and get them this time, attitude. This is how I feel. Right, right. And because so- now things are really building and uh, very frustrating. The other the first peak of the revolution was mainly about... Uh, the WhatsApp and few things. Now it's uh, devaluation of currency, uh, no jobs, uh, no milk for babies, no no fuel, uh, hardly any electricity. Maybe three hours of electricity per day. Wow! Uh, starvation. Uh, no more the three different classes. It's more like very wealthy or very poor. So. It's uh, it's a build-up for something really bad going to happen soon. Right. And just to clarify, there was a WhatsApp tax. They put a tax on people using WhatsApp. I just... Yes. <laughs> so I think what happened, yeah, there, there was, this is in, in the Western media, this was really what was reported during, you know, mm. the early days of the revolution that people... Uh, people sort of went to the streets and were in an uprising because of a WhatsApp tax. Mm-hmm. And what it was is they were they were going to apply charges to data right. uh, on top of buying the data. But it wasn't the fact that it's a WhatsApp tax. It was just yet another tax, mm-hmm. you know, more costs. You know, the, the government were, were applying more costs to the people, and yet there were no public services at all, you know, and, and this yeah. was the kind of thing that really blew it up. But, yeah, it's referred to as the WhatsApp tax. Right. Um, you know, I was watching a documentary about, you know, what the aftermath of, of the blast, and someone said, and you also said something similar in man, that the blast, he said, the blast in Lebanon is like an accumulation of decades of corruption that blew up in people's faces, almost like a metaphor but what I mean, you've mentioned a little bit about it, uh, about it. But there's been 15 billion dollars um, worth of damage. I know that the the people featured in this documentary were saying, you know, even this emergency aid, they they're like, don't bail uh, the Lebanese government out because actually it's just lining the pockets of politicians rather than transforming society. So, talk to me a little bit about how it is now 
and how you're all navigating all of this right now? Well, besides Art of Change, I have my own NGOs. So I have been working with the people who are affected by the blast. Uh, We're grateful. I have to say we're very grateful for the word uh, concern and support to the Lebanese and giving us funds to rebuild Beirut. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's funny because no one wants to give the government. They're all giving the IOs. Right. uh, and and, And the government was trying to tax the NGOs on their donations because they were not receiving any donations themselves. So I think it was more about the unity of people fighting back uh, in the face of corruption. Mm -hmm. In the sense that uh, the second day of the blast, we were all down on the ground cleaning the glass and uh, supporting one another. Uh, No one wrote the name of the NGO. No one was about giving back to the community uh, and supporting the community. And we received major support from the diaspora and the international community where, I mean, I repaired more than 240 homes. I wouldn't have been able to repair it if I didn't get the funds from uh, kind donations from everywhere, from people I don't know. Mm -hmm. I remember someone from Brazil who went on social media and said, please support this NGO. They are... uh, help Beirut. So there was a lot of support to the people, not to the government. Mm -hmm. And until now, um, it's support to the NGOs, to rebuild Beirut, and no trust in the government. Uh, Still halfway, I mean, there are... uh, there are so many homes that haven't been repaired yet. There are so many people out of their home. The situation is really bad, but uh, I think it's the Lebanese thing to keep fighting. Mm -hmm. And, and I think a key thing there as well is, you know, when that Beirut blast occurred, just the third largest man-made explosion, you know, the, the largest non-nuclear explosion ever, and it devastated the city. Um, I, I wasn't here. I came back a week later. And, and the destruction even then was huge. But the thing, you know, from, from within 10 minutes of the blast happening, the people on the street were the NGOs and the volunteers. There was no police. There was no army. There was no government officials. They they ran and hid, mm-hmm. um, and it was just left to the people to to to, to do all of this. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you know, absolutely anything that goes near the government just gets consumed. Um, whereas you know the, the people that are on the ground that are working, they're the ones that are actually making huge difference. And when you go down through Beirut now, and you, you know you see all the work that's been done to to rehabilitate the areas, mm. none of it has really had anything to do with the government. They've they've just sat back and left the people to suffer even more. It's just insane. Um, Iman, what is what is what is the name of your NGO, and what what do you do specifically? My NGO is called uh, Ahla Fauda, which means the best chaos. So in all mm. the cases in Lebanon, we are the best. <laughs> we give back to the community. Uh, I think like all the NGOs in Lebanon now, we are doing the government job. In right. a sense, we are uh, uh, repairing homes, uh, providing shelter, giving medical care, education, food, shoes, clothes, uh, whatever the community needs. It's all about giving back to the community. I'm I'm not the only one who does that. I think all the NGOs in Lebanon are doing the government role, right? Or right. most of them. Mm-hmm. And um, do you? How is art of change, and how is art in in this like crazy time that you're in? How is art responding to 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 Beirut right now? Uh, at the first big of the revolution, uh, the artists were so enthusiastic. They were, um, we made the call and we invited five artists and they became more than 20 and they kept growing. So it was a real eagerness for the change, for the the, the pos- positive promises that are coming. Mm-hmm. And then when nothing happened and the blast, it sort of killed their spirit. Mm-hmm. So now we are fighting to push them back to uh, to illustrate uh, their feelings on, in uh, in colors rather than hide. And, uh, this is how I see it. Uh, I don't know if Jason see it differently, 
but it, it, we've seen changes in the artist's uh, feelings and uh, direction. Don't you say so, Jason? Yeah, I think. It, yeah, I, I think the artists reacted the same as as most other people. It really kind of it, it took everything from them. Uh, you know, some of the artists have been particularly low. Um, and I think most, if not all, just really dried up in their creativity because they just they were just lost. Mm. Now things are beginning to move again. You know, we're engaging with the artists again. Um, and, and I think, you know, in some respects, they want us to drive them forward because, as, as the man said, during the revolution, you know, we, we were taking the guys out. We were traveling the country. We, you know, we did more than 200 street pieces with various different artists. Um, and, and they needed that. They, they enjoyed that. It was something that gave them purpose. And, you know, and, and after the blast, our focus was on re rehabilitation. Art kind of took a back seat. Mm. And at the same time, they all kind of, yeah, yeah, I think they just got maybe depression or just, just a sort of like lost hope. So now, you know, what we've seen is, is quite a few artists have actually already moved out of the country and the others that are still here, we're working with them. We're working with the ones that have left as well. And we, you know, hopefully we're going to start really making some new work that will, again, champion the, the cause and, and hope for change. Regarding the blast, we, um, well, before the blast, uh, we have one artist, Brady Black, who's an American living in Lebanon. He sketched the revolution. Mm. So every step of the revolution, he was down in the streets, sitting down, watching and sketching the revolution. Mm. And uh, when we did an exhibition for him, it was very powerful. In the exhibition, we spoke about uh, the blast and the victims. And he was very keen on uh, paying tribute to them, that they matter. So uh, we worked with him uh, in research and uh, and worked where uh, we did the portraits of the... Yes. Uh, yeah. And it was so, so powerful, depressing, moving, uh, uh, all kinds of feelings was that. Uh, and I think we are working, we're still working on this. But Jason can explain more on this. Yeah, I mean, as an art project, it's, it was the, the most challenging and yeah, emotionally draining project I've ever been involved in. Um, it was five months in the making because we had to do a lot of research to try and find all of the, uh, the victims and, and the names and, and relevant photos and things like that. And then, you know, Brady sketched each and every one of the victims. Mm. Um, and then on May the 4th, which was the uh, nine-month anniversary, we, we took around 50 volunteers and we went to the street and we pasted each and every, every uh, portrait up uh, on, on one block so that it was like a whole huge portrait gallery. Um, and it realize. was an incredibly emotional day. Yeah, mm. what we didn't realise when we did this on the 4th May, it was the birthday. The, the youngest uh, victim, which was a baby of uh, two years old, wow. it was, he would have been two or three, I can't remember, mm -hmm. uh, and worked for the UN and left the country. So the mother was really, such, she didn't really want to celebrate her birthday this way. We didn't even know that it was his birthday. It, it had even a stronger impact, actually. Yeah, it's so interesting what you're saying, because here in, in London, on Monday, it marked. I, I don't know if you heard about the Grenfell fires. Mm. So now the anniversary, yeah. Yeah, and it was four years of that, and you know the seventy-two people that died, and people still not, um, you know, receiving justice, and you know these inquiries take so long, and just, and 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 I think sometimes when things like this happen, people can feel a bit removed from the fact that these are people that have lives and stories and, you know, a baby. And, it, it, you know, it's, and I think art has this powerful way of also humanizing and connecting us to the humanity of something. Absolutely, absolutely. Actually, it reminded people with the uh, portrait gallery, because we 
did it on the street. So every passerby, it made him remember that, oh my God, we haven't done anything yet. Mm. We, no justice, also, no... When, no when they were all together, yeah, just seeing so many people and knowing they're all dead, they're all, you know, they're all mm. a victim of the blast and incompetence and things like that. It, such a powerful message to see just it's hard to, to to explain but you know see so many portraits side by side and they're all like 1.3 meters high uh, one meter wide so it, it's a massive impact to see all of those people and know that they're all victims of the Beirut blast what Brady did he did a silhouette of those we didn't have their images or whose families were uh, were afraid of this project, let's put it mm -hmm. this way. Mm -hmm. And then when we did the project and it was on the street, the families contacted us and asked if we can put, uh, replace the silhouette with the images. Wow. So uh, they were worried about how it will be done, but it was done with such respect mm -hmm. for the gone ones and their families. So uh, they were encouraged to bring the images and put them there and add them. That's really powerful. Do you, I'm just thinking about, you know, justice is, is important, you know, pe people, families seeing some kind of justice. Do, do you think with the government as it is, what does justice look like for these victims? Yeah. What do you think? I think the justice for the Lebanese population is uh, getting rid of the whole government. Yeah. Yeah. And for me personally, getting rid of them in, uh, in a way where they will never be here again because they are the cause of all the problems. And I'm sure their negligence, their, uh, their lack of compassion and uh, until now is making the families even more angry mm -hmm. and more determined. Uh, so justice is not just about finding out who put uh, um, whatever it, the nitrate there. It's about uh, the lack of compassion, interest, and care from the government. So they are all guilty, all of them, without exception, mm. all of them. Mm. I think the challenge is the fact that they are the ones in power, and they do have the ability to pass laws. And I think there are laws in place that kind of um, excuse them from blame in, in situations like this. So, you know, the government has been completely inactive and yet in the background, all they're doing is trying to kind of get their stories in line so they can, uh, you know, absolve themselves of blame. That's, that's their only priority. They're not looking for to give answers or to provide justice. They just, constantly looking for ways of absolving themselves of blame. So it's such a sad situation. I mean, recently, recently, the, the scene of the crime, the port, mm. there was supposed to be like a, like a seminar with a small concert mm -hmm. uh, under the patronage of the president. Right. At the site of the crime where nothing has been done yet. So the people, the, the, the families were there immediately and they stopped it. And the government knows that if they didn't stop it immediately, there would have been uh, trouble. Mm, 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 so mm. they are insensitive. Until now, they are insensitive. Mm. Well, yeah, this sounds like, I mean, they're very much protecting their, their position, isn't it? Um, at all costs. Yeah, I mean, they fight among each other, but at the same time, they're all eager for how much they can get before. Uh, mm. uh, it's terrible. There's nothing left, yeah. But I guess my question then is, you know, when they go, what replaces it? What replaces them? You know, I think it's uh, always... Sorry, man. No, I was just going to say, I mean, we are a nation of a very educated population. Mm -hmm. uh, we have so many uh, Lebanese all over the world who are doing incredible work for uh, wherever they are. So we do have the human uh, uh, 
uh, treasure or whatever the word. Like the will, uh, like the political will, I guess. You have, we the... have the will, we have the people who can do the job, we have the, you know, uh, that are never allowed to be there because it was controlled by certain family, mafiosos, families that they don't want to leave their empire. But it's not about an empire, it's about the population, it's about the... So... Uh, I think if they allow the Lebanese uh, intelligence uh, uh, to prevail, we can see uh, an amazing nation because this country, uh, I don't know any visitor who comes to Lebanon who doesn't say that there's something magic about Lebanon and all it's good and bad, there's something magic. And the magic is the people. It's the people. So uh, uh, some trust in the people and what they can do will make a big difference. That's powerful. Jason. Uh, yes, yeah, so I was just going to say, I think you know, during that 2019 uprising, one of the biggest issues was there was no leadership. It was a kind of a, a movement that had no leader and, and the people themselves collectively were the leader. But obviously from the ability to, to lead a government or to, to present a an opposition party. They needed to have leadership. They needed to have political agendas and things. And I think it, over, over that period from the first uprising to now, what we're now seeing is, is the recognition that there is an alternative leadership needed. It can't just get rid of one government and have nothing at all. So we're seeing new political parties being formed that, that are non-sectarianism and, you know, they're, they're looking to support the people regardless of religion and things. And those things are now developing. We're seeing candidates come being offered up for presidency and stuff like that. So it's the hope that between now and when the elections start to take place and things like that, the will of the people carries through and the government aren't able to manipulate and, and corrupt the electoral system and things like that. And then maybe finally real change will start to happen. Mm. We have seen a few elections also since the beginning of the uh, revolution. Sorry, say, say that again. Say the first thing you said again. We have seen few assassinations since the beginning oh, wow. of the revolution. So uh, minds that were feared are gone. I see. Yeah, that's well, that's heavy, you know, assassinations. And our people, I know you had said earlier that there are people that are moving, that they're leaving. Are some of the, but then I know you will always have people that I saw like a banner, someone, you know, a big banner and it was written, you know, I'm staying. There are people that are just, we are staying no matter what. But are the, when people are being assassinated for their, you know, for their political opinions because they are resisting the status quo, are those people fleeing to be in safer places and perhaps come back later? I mean, how is that working? I mean, I, I believe uh, the Lebanese people have always lived with uh, resistance and adaptation, resistance and adaptation. Uh, so, but now it's beyond resistance adapt and adaptation because it's like, uh, it's like we're suffocating while we're breathing. Wow. Uh, so it's, uh, you can't resist or adapt to this situation. And some people are, are had enough. I mean, I keep saying that I will not. And also, uh, we cannot leave uh, if, if because our money is stuck in the <laughs> our right. money is stuck in the bank. We're not allowed to have access to our money, so we can't even leave because we can't even take our money and leave. So <laughs> it's not that easy. It's not that easy. We're in a catch twenty two situation, waiting for uh, a miracle. This season, you've been hearing stories of people who are using their art and or creativity to respond to social issues. And oftentimes, the response or act of resistance is in the making. It's the giving voice to, the creating opportunity and space for. And the beauty of creativity is that it's catalytic in many ways. It inspires others to respond. And this was the case with Shell, a host on Airbnb who opened up her home to people impacted by Hurricane Sandy that hit New York in 2012. Her generosity sparked a movement and marked the beginning of a programme that allows hosts on Airbnb to 
to provide stays for people in times of need. Since then, the programme has evolved to focus on emergency response and to help provide stays to evacuees, relief workers, refugees, asylum seekers, and most recently, frontline workers fighting the spread of COVID-19. Today, that work continues under Airbnb.org, a non-profit that connects people with places to stay during times of crisis. From Australia to France, more than 100,000 hosts have offered to open up their homes and help provide accommodation to 75,000 people in times of need. You know, the concept of a right to housing is important enough to be protected by international law. Article 25 of the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights talks about protecting a right to housing, whereby, I quote, everyone has the right to a standard of living adequate for the health and well-being of himself and of his family, including food, clothing, housing and medical care and necessary social services and the right to security in the event of unemployment, sickness, disability, widowhood, old age, or other lack of livelihood in circumstances beyond his control. Psychologist Maslow talked about a hierarchy of needs, shelter being integral to our basic physiological needs like food, air and water. There are so many factors that are causing people to be displaced or lose shelter and housing. War, natural disasters, ethnic cleansing, unemployment, and then add a pandemic to that. But one host on Airbnb, if you like, holds up the ladder for her community and it inspires and shapes how an organisation not only conducts its business, but also how it engages with the communities around it to create a global network of partnerships. To find out more, head to airbnb.org or click the link in the podcast blurb. Well, you know, it's it's interesting because, I mean, I know this similar sort of thing happened in Sudan and they have a, and he was, I can't remember the name of the president, Al-Bashir, I think. He was in, he was in power for, I think, 40 years. He's gone now and they have a government that is a mixture of military, but also very, very educated people because Sudan has also extremely educated people like like Lebanon, like you're saying. And it's not a perfect solution, but I think in a similar to Lebanon, it was it was a, a youth-led revolution. Like we are sick of this. And I, I I do think it is only a matter of time before before you 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 get something, you know, before these people just have to leave. I, I don't I don't know. It's different when you're living there, but I suppose from outside, you know, I, I feel like it's only a matter of time. But I have two uh, kids who are studying in universities in Europe. Mm. And uh, I come from a comfortable background, so I shouldn't be in a situation where I have to go to the bank and beg (laughs) to have access to my money to pay my university fees for uh, my children. Mm. And I am better off than many people who have lost uh, everything and whose children now are in universities in Europe or in the States or wherever who had to leave their education, uh, can't even afford to come back to Lebanon because their families cannot send them money. So uh, leaving is not so much an option unless you have uh, the means outside the nation, Mm -hmm. you know. So we are prisoners in a way of our situation. We resist, we adapt, but at the same time, we are prisoners of our situation uh, because of how uh, the rules that are set on us. And uh, so it's not that simple. Yeah. It's not yeah. that simple. Mm-hmm. I think we, you know, we have seen there's this exodus, if you like, of, mm. of people that have left the country and looking to set up new lives elsewhere. But at the same time, what I've learned about the Lebanese, they never let go of their country. So even if they are, or if they aren't here, they're still trying to find ways of expediting the change that's needed in the country and things like that. And I think you know, everyone that's left, none of them has said they're leaving for good. Mm-hmm. It's They will be back, but 
they just can't survive in this current environment. So I think, you know, yes, like I say, change will happen. It's just how quickly and 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 how well the current government are able to continue to avoid and ignore the inevitable. You know, the whole world's eyes are on the government. Mm. They're doing absolutely nothing for their people. Um, yeah, and every day the situation gets worse. So something's got to give at some time. So if it's not, the people will finally explode and, and there will be a violent uprising. The government just needs to get out of the way and let you know, a caretaker government be formed and, and something happen to, to start the rescue of Lebanon. Because mm-hmm. at the moment, they are in freefall and it's, it's the government that are kind of holding all the strings. We are. We are deeply rooted to our nation. I mean, more than a million dollars were sent by the diaspora uh, and that helped uh, the rebuild of Beirut. So some of them, maybe they have never been to Lebanon, uh, but they uh, there, there is strong uh, connection with the roots to this nation. It's incredible. Yes, I. we never leave. Mm. We go but come back. Wow. And so you, sorry, the line was a bit strange. How many dollars? You said how many million dollars? More was... than $8 million wow. were collected by the diaspora, not including the international community, just the Lebanese wow. or worldwide. So, uh, and this is, uh, this is the connection and uh, loyalty to, to the cedar tree. That's powerful. That's very powerful. Um, I always ask everyone that comes on this podcast to share lessons that they've learned that we can learn from. And so in the context of everything that you've both been sharing about art and the situation in Lebanon, and I love what you said about being connected to the cedar tree. What lessons would you like that you have learned that you think we can learn from? Uh, Personally, I would say stop adapting continue resisting and fight to make the change. That's great. Stop adapting, continue resisting and fight to make the change. Jason. Um, yeah, I, I think it's difficult for me. I, I, I mean, it, as Iman said, the Lebanese have this reputation of being incredibly resilient and they just take whatever happens and kind of get on with things. And I think that should stop. You know, that's not not a good quality anymore. It's about time they did stop accepting, you know, the the things that are inflicted, and they have to suffer. Uh, and you know, and hopefully they will realise that and really kind of refuse to accept this way of living anymore. That's that's ultimately what it's got to be about. They they are incredibly resilient. They should turn that that into a strength of you know, defiance and, and pushing for change instead of just accepting it all the time. I will add one more thing, actually, mm. to believe in the, to believe the power of their mind and not what the leaders say to them, mm. which is uh, a sad reality to so many people until now. Mm-hmm. That's really good. It's very... Yeah, religion and politics. If there is one thing that I've learned is that religion and politics is the worst mix they could possibly be. Mm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I, I interviewed somebody who is an artist, um, a Japanese artist, and he talks about he was living in New York at the time of 9-11 and he talks about what he calls generative or genesis moments in times of great suffering and that, you know, that suffering is when artists are needed the most. And he said, he would read, there's a there's a writer called T.S. Eliot, and he would read T.S. Eliot's poems out loud on the subway. Um, and, in, and in New York, no one cares that people are doing things out loud, but he said actually reading some, and T.S. Eliot had written those poems because of his own trauma after, I think it was the Second World War. And so I wonder how art actually in in times of intense suffering actually is a space for generative or genesis or beginning moments and i wonder what you think art the role art can play in all of this resistance no more adapting but resisting and saying enough is enough what role the arts plays to bring about genesis moments i think with um 
you know, working with street arts and urban art, that is exactly the, for me, that's the, the main purpose of street art is to have these defining moments and, and bring challenge or you know, offer challenge and confrontation and, and make people look and think differently um, through messages on the street. And, and equally have have the positive, you know, the, the things to hope for and things to aspire for as well. So uh, for me, yes, I think yeah, the artists, they went through a very dark period just as anybody else, any other Lebanese person did. And now I think it's back to us to say, right, let's, let's go to the streets. Let's start inspiring people again. Let's give them something to think about and maybe they can start to hope for change. Mm. Um, but we should be part of that process as we were during the revolution where we, you know, we were documenting the events of the revolution. We were, we were championing the cause of the people. We were echoing the voice of the people. And that's really the role of art. And I think yeah, at the same time, there's, there's the, the youth and the children and, and everything else as well. And they've been severely impacted by the events of, of everything that's gone on in the last two years. And, and in some of the workshops that we've done, we've had community days where we've worked with underprivileged children and things. And just that ability to express themselves through art makes a huge difference to their, their positivity and, and their feeling. So, yeah, you know, art has definitely got a role. I think art of change, our role in that is, is to bring the artists back together and to start, you know, in, inspiring them to do work, which in turn inspires the people. That's my view anyway. Amazing. I think the cycle we went through was the uh, art of change and the artists really portray how art uh, had a strong impact. I mean, in the revolution, we were, the art was the voice of the people. Mm. It expressed their pain, it expressed their revolution, their anger, their demands. With the blast, there was a silence of the art because of the depression. Mm. And uh, now it's picking up with the matter, we have to fight back. So I think it really transmits what is happening with the population. Uh, and the artists are feeling it, and whatever comes out of them or doesn't come out, it's really based on the living conditions that the whole nation is living. Mm -hmm. And uh, we saw it with Art of Change. We saw the euphoria of the art and the euphoria of the revolution. Uh, we saw the depression where everything went silent and now we're seeing it picking up again, uh, exactly like how the people are beginning to pick up again. I, I think uh, an interesting observation or an interesting observation for me is that um, maybe in some respects when, when, hope and, when hope is lost and all there is is despair, which is I think is how Beirut felt for a long time after the blast, it's hard to find any inspiration in anything, even in pain and anger. Mm. Um, but recent events in Palestine and, you know, with uh, the Israeli oppression and everything else, I think that, again, it, was, it wasn't something happening in Lebanon. So, so, so some of the artists, you know, feel that empathy with, uh, you know, their fellow people. And that in itself inspired some some artworks again to be challenging and everything else but it's you know it's it's in support of the palestinians rather than within their own country because i think there's a different different feeling and a different different motivation so hopefully you know the whole palestinian movement and everything that again is something that we can align with and and use as our inspiration to start bringing change in this country as well for those of us that aren't in lebanon and that people that will listen to this, what can we do and what do you want us to know? Uh, I think listen, listen to the voice of the people and help when you can and believe that uh, we'll come out of it uh, strong. Mm -hmm. I do believe that uh, uh, we're going to hit the darkest moment, but out of the darkest moment, the light is going to shine again. Mm -hmm. uh, watch out for us. We'll make it happen. <laughs> 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 I, I, I think one of the biggest issues for me is like the way Western media portrays what's going on in the Middle East and things like that. Um, and, you know, being here and seeing events and, and being more politically aware 
uh, is a very different different thing. So, you know, I would say, you know, absolutely do not trust the Lebanese government. If you want to help the country, then find credible NGOs. And support those because they are the, they're the ones that are helping the people. The government, no matter what's being said in the press, are doing absolutely nothing. So any support to the government is just supporting the regime. Um, and, yeah, it's, it's time to support the, the real people of Lebanon and, and listen to their voice. I seriously believe that things are changing worldwide where governments will lie down and people will speak out. Mm. So maybe Lebanon is mirroring what will happen around the world because mm. the, the fear and the lack of trust in governments is becoming uh, everywhere. Mm. So true. I think it's the power of the people. It's, a, it's changed to the power of the people from now on. I hope so anyway. Yeah, yeah, definitely. My last question, uh, to end on a lighter note, I I'm a musician, so I always ask my guests, what music are you listening to? What, what's the song's called, you man? <laughs> I'm listening to my son's music. My son is a music producer. Fantastic. Uh, and he's, uh, he has his mother's activism. Great. <laughs> So uh, his music is very powerful, portraying what's happening in Lebanon. So uh, I'm a proud mom listening to my son's music. Well, what's his name? So that we can, because I always share this music with people so they can go and discover the music themselves. So what, what's his name? His name, uh, his studio is called TD Studio. Mm -hmm. uh, and his name uh, Ziad Asaf. And his music name is DJ Zero. Professor Z, no? Professor Z, Professor Z, sorry. Professor His Z. name is Professor Z. Okay, Thanks, answer. <laughs> Please don't let him know that I didn't know. Don't worry, we'll, we'll edit this out. <laughs> <laughs> Do it again, you man. Music is very powerful. His music is uh, very powerful. Fantastic. Well, music always... Um, I, music will always narrate a revolution. Always, always, always. There's always music to go with resistance. You know? We did something really powerful with music and art where it was messages of hope from around the world. Mm -hmm. And uh, we did this with uh, the uh, LSE alumni mm -hmm. uh, and uh, Anna Har newspaper in Lebanon. So what we did, we asked artists to illustrate uh, the messages and my son played the music and we put it on uh, again on a big screen on the street messages from 40 nations uh, messages of hope for lebanon and it was yeah. very powerful art and music is really the strongest language of communication we, we projected it against um i think it was a 10-story building so it was a huge huge projection as well amazing amazing um, Jason, are you also listening to Professor Z, or do you have anything else you want to add? <laughs> no, I, you know, I, I'm a, I'm an old an old raver, so I have a mix of uh, hardcore and all sorts of things I like to listen to. Sometimes a bit of rock, sometimes a bit Brit rock. Um, but yeah, when when we've got projects going, it's normally some some hardcore from the the early nineties or something. Give give me a name. Give me a name of somebody. Oh, just the Chemical Brothers, okay. Punk, all sorts of things. Okay. But Jason, Professor Z is the best, isn't he? <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, if we're talking modern music now, there's nothing else but Professor Z. And I am not biased at all. <laughs> Iman, uh, Jason, thank you so much for your time. This has been fantastic. And, you know... I'm really passionate with this podcast to really show people creativity and art really from around the world and that, that everywhere there are people telling incredible stories. There are, there are you know, sometimes, I, do, I mean, especially in the West, our media is very skewed one way. 
So you'll tend to only see one thing for a really long time, then it leaves a new cycle and then something else happens. So it's I, I, I'm hoping that this will remind people what's going on in Lebanon and, and, and it will return to people's conscience, conscience, consciences so that they can, you know, really start, you know, participating in what's going on and stay aware um, um, of what's going on. Thank so you thank so you much. very much. Please indeed. ask them to like our page and uh, follow it. Thank you so much to Art of Change, to Iman and Jason. You can see the mural we talk about by Brady Black in memoriam of all the explosion victims. I've put links in the podcast blurb with the hashtag #TheyMatter and Justice for Beirut. If you'd like to support the humanitarian relief work happening on the ground in Lebanon, you can donate to Iman's NGO Ahla Fauda or Beauty Amidst Chaos. And to find out more about the work Art of Change is doing, you can head to their website or follow them on Instagram, Facebook and YouTube. All links are in the podcast blurb. Thank you for listening. Holding Up the Ladder is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Please share, like, subscribe to the podcast, leave comments. We also want to hear from you about any initiatives, individuals or organisations you know of that are using the arts and creativity to champion social change. You can DM us on Twitter at HUTL underscore or Instagram holding up the ladder hashtag HUTL or email us at contacthutl at gmail.com. Thank you again to our sponsors Airbnb. To learn more about the work they're doing and why they're supporting holding up the ladder, head to the links in the podcast blurb. Next week, we'll be talking all about humanitarian shelter, sustainability and architectural responses to that with architect and award-winning filmmaker, Dr. Mark Breeze. It comes to this really kind of interesting question in that sort of middle period to then more permanent rehousing that really for me questions, you know, what is shelter? What does it need to do? The, the issue is that, it, it, that there are many less tangible elements in, um, in being human and in living. Mm. You know, uh, that ability to socialize, the ability for community, you know, uh, the realities of actually making sure you remain healthy, that you have the ability to access um, some kind of meaningful engagement or work. Um, you know, very complicated issues, which are tied in with a lot of policy issues, uh, legal issues, um, particularly if you're claiming asylum and such. How do you classify privacy uh, in a socially, culturally specific way? Uh, you know, if there's certain also gender divisions. Uh, so, and for me, I think, you know, that really engages architecture and the skills that we spend many years and uh, learning and working in practice to obtain a kind of professional qualification to think about these more nuanced issues, to, to find a, a way forward that, you know, really fundamentally questions, what does shelter need to do? Until next time.